Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 4th. May the 4th be with you, and that's the only thing I'll say about that today. Um, it is a Monday. Usually we do kind of a feedback type show today, but today we're going to do a standalone show. Um, I've been getting a lot of questions about my backyard ponds, specifically my Miyagi ponds. They're also called wood frame ponds, and I'll tell you a little bit about why they're called that when we get into this today, uh, the Miyagi thing. Um, but I, I don't know. I've gotten more questions about ponds in general, it, it specifically the wood frame ponds, in the last two or three weeks than I think I've gotten since I built the smaller eight-foot wood frame pond like four years ago. Uh, combined. So like if you take four years ago, I also did the steel ponds. I've done a bunch of other pond stuff in, in, you know, the seven years I've been on this property. I've done a lot of things with ponds. The first pond system went in about seven years ago. And I think I've gotten more questions about the timber frame stuff on YouTube, through social media, on Instagram, uh, direct emails, etc. in the past couple months. And I've gotten in the totality combined. So I don't know if it's because people are at home watching the YouTube, said like an old man, um, you know, because of COVID. I don't know if maybe some of my videos got featured somewhere and that brought new people in that haven't seen or heard answers from this before. Um, but I've just got a lot of interest. And it's something that I was going to talk about Thursday. And um, I realized by the time we'd gotten like an hour and 40 minutes into that show, and it was the last segment, like number one, 10 minutes, I really couldn't cover it well. And number two, that show was going long. And it would be just good to punt it and do it this week. And I woke up this morning, and uh, as is my custom now, I made a cup of coffee. I walked around my property, and I spent a lot of time out at my big Miyagi pond, my big 12-foot uh, box pond with about uh, 4,000 gallons of water in it. I stood there, and I watched the fish. I watched the dragonflies come in. Um, I just enjoyed it. Just just flat out enjoyed being there, and I thought, yeah, today's the day I want to do this. So that's what we're going to talk about today, backyard ponds. And I want to be clear as I lead off here what I mean by a pond. So today, what I, what I mean when I say pond is probably somewhere down to about 100 gallons up to about 5,000 gallons. And, and the commonalities in this, this size of pond, in that range, you can probably put a pond in any backyard. And I'd even say a couple, three, four thousand gallons could go in most suburban yards if you really wanted it to. My 12 by 12 pond is about, uh, I think it's just under 4,000 gallons when we did the math on it. And if you live in a place where you can dig deeper than I can, obviously you could go, you know, I'm about three and a half feet up above grade, and I'm maybe 10 inches below grade there. Um, but you could easily go four or five foot uh, digging with a shovel. In you know that type of a construction, um, down to you know a hundred gallon prefabricated Home Depot Lowe's type shell pond, and all different types of things that you can do in between. Um, I didn't specifically spell this out today, but I've seen people do something as simple as they go to Home Depot or Lowe's or any of the box stores where you can get the uh, the stone imitation stone concrete things for like putting in uh, a garden. You know, like people, they landscape the front of their house with it. 
and they build something that's kind of maybe circular or oblong or what have you. And then they just drop a pond liner into it, put one more course of those rocks on it, and they have a pond. I've seen garden centers build ponds like that right on the concrete, you know, a couple of 300 gallons um, right there. So there's, there's almost no limit to where ponds like this can go. And there's all different scalability up to several thousand gallons down to a couple hundred gallons. And that's where I'm going today. I, if, if you're like a tenth of a, uh, um, an acre, up to about an acre, I consider that more of a conventional pond. You know, if you go a tenth of an acre, you can do this without a pump. Everything we're going to talk about today, I'm going to suggest you use a pump with, maybe two. Um, if you go to an acre or bigger, I don't, I, I, I don't know if, like, you know, ships and boats, there's a cutoff for tonnage. I don't know if there is an official, like, you know, freshwater biologist cutoff point where this is no longer a pond, now it's a lake. But to me, when you get up to about an acre and bigger, I would call that a lake. And definitely, when you get up to that amount of surface water, you can do that you know, as a still pond, if you want to call it that. You don't necessarily need any kind of circulation. So we're talking about artificially controlled ecosystems in the backyard today that are small enough, on the, at least on the downside, that anybody can do. And all of them can do a lot for us. That, that's where we're at today, just to kind of set the stage. Um, they're also easy to maintain at that size, even a couple thousand gallons with either rain catch water off of your roof that can be, you know, maybe directed directly into the pond, or you could take something like a 1,500-gallon poly tank um, that can be had for under a 1,000 bucks, set it up on a platform and catch water in that and have it for other things too, but definitely you can maintain a pond of 100, uh, 100 to 1,000 or even 2,000 gallons with some sort of uh, mechanism like that in most climates. Um, well water, which is what I use because I save my rainwater for irrigation uh, and aquaponics and hydro, I'm sorry and, and hydroponics. Um, but you could do it with well water as long as your well is good, and most wells will be happy to do that. And even you know when you're in that kind of range, if you have to, you can use city water that you dechlorinate. So if we're trying to maintain a tenth of an acre pond, we're, we're not going to do that. We need catchment to do that with, with, with surface runoff we could, or maybe direct off of a lot of roof or hardtop. But we can't stick a garden hose in a quarter-acre pond that's eight feet deep and keep it maintained if it's above grade. So that's kind of the realm that we're in today. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and say a little bit about our two sponsors today. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is ButcherBox. I love ButcherBox because meat comes to my house in a box and it's always perfect. And what I mean by perfect, good quality, great stuff's pastured pork, pastured poultry, grass-fed beef. Uh, and it's the meat, like when I look at the quality of the cuts, when I go to the grocery store and I pick out meat, I'm really particular about it. Like I don't just like grab three steaks. I'm like, I look at it, I look at the marbling and all. And all of this is like I have a personal shopper that I personally trained that goes out and gets my meat and brings it to my house. The other thing I mean by perfect is even when it gets dropped off in the morning and I don't get to it for like half an hour, it's out at the gate, uh, and it's 100 degrees out. When I go out and get the box and bring it in, um, the meat's still frozen because it's packed in dry ice. It's well insulated. They do everything right. They do everything so right that they actually pay me as a sponsor in product. They're the only sponsor I have that pays me in their product, and I'm happy to take that deal. Uh, check them out today at ButcherBox.com, and I believe they're still on a wait list due to COVID because of upward demand. Uh, but if you're going to want to be a customer, get on that list now. Uh, next up today is the Free State Project, where I'm hoping to be speaking this summer. Uh, as far as Dorothy and I are concerned, we're still going to New Hampshire uh, at the end of June. 
and I really hope to see some of you all there. But one way or another, you want to get involved with the Free State Project, either as a supporter, because what's good for liberty somewhere is good for liberty everywhere, or actually getting actively involved and maybe moving to New Hampshire as part of the project. You can learn more at fsp.org uh, forward slash join. Check them out. I mean, guys, if you want to know the cause that I have been behind almost every day since I started TSP over 12 years ago, it's the Free State Project. And I think a lot of people are like, Really take note of that because I'm not going to move to New Hampshire. We even flirted with it, but it's just it's not in the cards for us. But when I met those people and saw what they were all about, I threw my full weight behind them, and I've never stopped. If you get involved, you'll see why. Check them out today again, fsp.org. And if you want to know why you should become part of it, fsp.org forward slash join. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, to talking about this today. Uh, I, I actually titled today's show Backyard Ponds for Food Fun uh, – I'm sorry, Fish Fun, Food, and Frogs. <laughs> Um, which covers things pretty well. I actually wanted to do something for profit in there, but it wasn't an F. So frogs can be ribbit, ribbit frogs, or froggies is a slang term. I don't know if maybe I'm just old and that's why I know that uh, for money. Like 50 froggies is 50 bucks. All right. Uh, it's a real thing. You can look it up if you don't believe me. But um, I want to start out with that in mind, kind of going through why you'd want a garden pond of the size that we're talking about today anyway. The first and foremost is beauty. I can't tell you. How happy it makes me when I pick up my coffee and I go out to one of my water features. I've got quite a few of them now. And I just have that first cup of coffee in the morning. I mean, you know, that hot component of the coffee hitting your lips, especially this time of year when the mornings are, even though it's hot out now, the mornings are so cool. And watch maybe a fish rise. Uh, look at the plants and notice, hey, that... That water lily didn't have a blossom coming up on it yesterday. That that water iris uh, no longer has flowers on it. I wonder if I'll get any more this year. Oh, look at that blue dragonfly land on that river cane. Like, seeing that every morning, there's a beauty to that that I, I don't think many other things can replicate. Water is magical. And as we're going through this, I want to talk about our quote of the day. And... Um, Today's quote of the day is by Benjamin Franklin. Maybe not who you would think of when it comes to, to backyard ponds. And he wasn't speaking of ponds. He was speaking of water. When he said, when a well's dry, we know the worth of water. And I think when we remove the beauty equation of water, we also lose sight of its, of its, of its, of its worth. So we, I think we take water for granted in this country because unlike a lot of places... 99.9% uh, .9 of homes in America, you can walk to the faucet and flip it up. And even though I filter water and I think there's some things about our water that aren't the healthiest, in general, you can drink the water, you're not going to get sick. There's a lot of places in the world that's not true. So we lose sight of the worth of water because it's so abundant and easily available to us as long as times are good. And boy, we learn the worth of water when there's a hurricane. That's why people lose their mind because Best Buy has the 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 uh, the the, the you know, dares to sell water for the same price they sell for all the time, except you're buying it by the case instead of one bottle at the, uh, the, the, the checkout register. And people lose their minds over that, losing sight of reality altogether. But it's because we see the worth of it when it's not there. We see the worth of it when there's a boil water advisory and people can't get water out of their sink. But what I think we do is we lose the value of the beauty of water, and we think of it being somewhere apart from us. So, you know, I go to the state park or whatever, and there's a beautiful creek or there's a pond or something like that. And if we don't have it in our backyard, we forget how 
connected humans are to water. And if you look throughout history, back into the earliest history of mankind that we can study, man and water go hand in hand. There's another quote, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something like, millions have lived without love and none have lived without water. You know, we say we need love to survive, and I certainly think that it's, it's helpful, but you can live, like, not stop breathing without love in your life. I don't know if it's worth it, but you can. But you take water from, from us, and water literally is life. We will die. We can even go quite a long time without food. We need food. It is a necessity. It's on the hierarchy of needs, for sure. But you take water from somebody for as little as a day under certain circumstances, and they're dead. A day. I know you can go 48 hours. Not in extreme heat, and if you're weakened in any other form... Uh, you can easily go into heat stroke and die in a day or less. So water is life, but it's also beauty. It also creates habitat. I'm building a pond now that I'll talk about a little bit more in a bit when I talk about the different things we can use to build ponds, but it's 100% a habitat pond. There's going to be an aquaponics component to it, but that's for filtration. It's going in my aviary. Uh, it, it's solely for living things to come be part of. But what I've learned is when you create any sort of a pond environment, things come. Things show up. Um, not the least of which are dragonflies. And dragonflies are a major way that we control mosquitoes and other insect pests. Dragonflies are literally the dragons of flies. Uh, so they call them that. And they're amazing creatures. That's just one example uh, that you see as far as mosquitoes. If you put, you know, Gambrosia mosquito fish in your pond or most fish in general, you're not going to have a mosquito problem. Um, but I mean, I'm building one so that there'll be frogs in it. I'm building, and I have, like, like one of my ponds um, is a steel frame, 470 gallon steel frame pond. It's part of a larger expanse that, I'll, again, I'll talk about when we go through the materials for building. But I have giant bullfrogs in there now. I mean, big bullfrogs in there. Well, I didn't put bullfrogs in there. And there's no surface water within a mile of my house. But uh, a few years ago, we had the wettest May on record in Texas. And it rained every day except three in May. And most days it rained an inch or more. It was flooding everywhere. Here we were fine. And all types of aquatic life showed up on my property. We had, like, pond turtles. I don't know how the hell they got that far, but pond turtles walking, you know, down my driveway and things like that. And that's when the, the bullfrogs showed up. We have leopard frogs. Last year, when you would walk past the upper pond in that, there was leopard frogs just ping-ponging all over. I did bring in some leopard frog tadpoles, but I don't really know where they came from because I put them in the big timber pond, and I've never seen one in there. So they may have climbed out, I don't know, and decided they liked the other one better, but um, it, it sure seems like maybe they just kind of showed up on their own. Um, green tree frogs, Cope's gray tree frogs I've had show up. Um, I've had little, you know, you see like little yellow racer snakes come and drink out of the water. I haven't had any real water snakes show up yet or anything like that. Um, but habitat, and it, it just keeps going, and it's anything you do with water that creates this. And what I, well, example I'll give of that, not even a pond, our pool, which is chlorinated. All summer long, you'll be you know floating around in the pool, having a beer, enjoying a, a summer day, and here comes a big old red wasp and lands in the water, like you know two feet away from you, sips water because they they basically don't break the surface tension and they kind of sit on the top of the water. They drink water and they leave. 
well, that water's not a great water for anything to be drinking. I, I'm not going to stop them, you know. But that's the wasps. And I know a lot of people don't like wasps, but wasps are a predator. They're beneficial in, in our gardens in general. As long as we don't have a nest somewhere that belong. When I watch my true aquatic systems, the life that comes to these little ponds is unbelievable. Birds, and I mean, just it sustains so much more life. It creates so much more diversity. Uh, Jeff Lawton designed a five-acre property. It's a great presentation he did on it. He put a bunch of in-ground ponds on it. I'll see if I can find that video. It's pretty old. I don't know if I can. Um, but he cut a lot of trees down on this property. And he said, I would normally never cut that many trees. He said it was kind of low-quality, low-value trees, less than 20 years old, mostly scrub tree and stuff like that. He said, but in general, I would never even cut those trees. Certainly not in the numbers that he, he dropped on that property. But he said the reality is for surface water, I'll do it. Because surface water will bring a hundred times more diversity of life into the property as the trees themselves will. And I've, I've noticed that that is a constant that holds true. Next is fish. And fish, we're going to go back first to beauty. This morning, I took a handful of pellets, went to one of my little ponds that I have some koi in. And shabunk and goldfish and some other stuff. And I just took a little handful and I pitched in there. And just watching... All those colorful fish come up and eat and be happy. I mean, there's there's a tranquility in that. There's a reason. If you look at cultures that are big on this, that do it both for food and for beauty and aesthetics, the, the Asian culture and specifically the Japanese more than anybody else, there's a reason that they put such a high esteem on koi. Now, koi are a species of carp. Carp is the most eaten fish in the world, but you don't really find people eating koi. I guess you could if you had to. Back up plan Z or something. But they were put in for their beauty. And the colors and the patterns and the tranquilness and the fact that they actually become quite tame when you feed them over time. Uh, mine are pretty... Because I build habitat that's really more about the fish than the fish owner. And I build a lot of hides. I think mostly koi and other fish, if you give them that, they tend to be less tame. Because they have the ability to behave like fish. But in ponds where you give them less places to hide, I've seen koi that will come up and you can literally touch them while they feed. Where people put their hands in the water even not to feed them, they come up and start like sucking on your fingers because they expect to be fed. Almost like they're puppy dogs. And they live a long time. Goldfish and koi, man, live 20 years or more when they're properly cared for to where you actually know an individual fish. So there's that type of thing with fish. I'm going to tell you about some pro a project I'm working on right now later, but I'm going to put rosy reds in there, which are just basically a type of minnow. They're a flathead minnow, a fathead minnow. So like, But they're just a pink fathead minnow that are used in the aquarium industry as a feeder fish. So we can put something like that in there and get a big visual appeal, or even things like white cloud minnows that people think of as a tropical fish, but they're actually a cold water fish. They can survive outdoors in a lot of our climates, especially with a little supplemental heating of the water. So there's a whole aspect of fish that's about aesthetics and beauty and uh, natural insect control with mosquitoes and things like that. And then there is the food aspect. I Right now, if I want fish tacos tonight, I can go out to one of my tanks, throw a net real quick, a little dip net in there, pull out some minnows, put a couple of minnows on it, and in five minutes I can pull out some bluegills or some channel cats and a couple of fish and a fillet knife, and I've got a meal. Like I've got that level of security. Now, I don't think I'll ever have enough production to, like, produce fish for market, and I don't intend to. Or even to eat fish, you know, three or four times a week. But right now, honestly, I could eat 
fish for dinner once a week for a year before I had to even think about restocking with the few ponds that I have, and none of them are really huge. And the longer I go and the more I develop, the more true that becomes. And being able to feed yourself a protein meal even once every other week, let's say 20, 20, uh, what, 25 times a year, is a pretty good thing when it comes to stability of your food system. If you go to a point where you're rationing your protein for some reason, that's one-seventh of your needs for, let's say, a year. And you, you, you have all the other things that go with it. So the food is a good thing. How about just reserve water? I have no doubt that if I took the water out of one of my ponds, put it through my Berkey, it would be safe to drink. And certainly if I put it through my Berkey and then boiled, it would be safe to drink. My friend David built a pond in his backyard out of a swimming pool. So he's got a you know, in-ground swimming pool, bigger than anything I've got. But for, for as pools go, it's a pretty small pool. But it is a pond. I mean, it's got surface vegetation. It's got a bunch of fish in it. It's got frogs in it. It's a pond pond. And I'm sure if you took that water and put it under a microscope, there would be all kinds of life in there, including things that would make you crap your pants if you drank it like that. But it's also very high-quality water. The biologically active water is actually high-quality water. You just the biological things in it that are bad for you, like Clyptosporidium and Girardia, you don't want to drink. But he took that water, put it through a Berkey, sent it off to a lab and had it analyzed, and it came out as better-quality water than what comes out of his faucet. I find that interesting. So the reserve water for irrigation, if you need to rely on it for actual drinking, whatever, it's just more water. And I've never thought, when it comes to looking at a property and saying, if this is supposed to sustain people through emergencies or whatever, gee, there's too much water on that property. I wish there was less. I've often found the opposite to be the case. Like, water is a weakness here. So it's, it's reserve water. Aquatic plants, and that means that there's things that we can do that are edible, like the most productive plant per square foot on the planet is water chestnut. So a, a couple pots, um, gravel in the bottom, soil, throw one or two water chestnut crumbs in each you know kind of large pot, and build a shelf and set that in the water so that the, the soil stays moist, really moist, because they like really moist. They like to grow at the edge. So you're creating an edge environment. It looks like the mud at the edge of a pond, except it's actually sitting in the pond unless you can figure out another way to do it by being creative. And you can produce massive amounts of water chestnuts. You can produce edible taros. There's a lot of different plants that grow in water edges or on water that are edibles. Um, an example, Ipomyra aquatica is also one of the most productive plants in the world. It's a great green. The stems are edible. The leaves are edible. It's fantastic. It's also known as uh, Chinese water spinach or Vietnamese water spinach. It's, it's technically an illegal plant to grow in a lot of places, but... You know, unless you're stupid about how you do it, you're probably not going to hear from anybody. And if you did, that's invasive. Oh, shit, it just showed up. I'll get rid of it. I mean, you know, come on. Um, and it's really not a threat uh, in most places. If you live in a place where it doesn't overwinter, it's not a threat, whether they banned it or not. And we have states that have banned this plant, like Texas, where, like, if you, if you said, well, in Houston, I'm like, okay, you have a totally valid reason for that. Because the, the winters there are mild enough that this plant can reproduce, it can reseed, etc. Uh, I've grown it here. I wish it would make it through our winters. It never makes it through our winters. 
water celery does make it through our winters, and that's considered an invasive as well. Um, but there are plants that we can grow in aquatic systems, either because they're supposed to grow there or because they do grow there. And if you're growing something in an aquatic system, how often do you have to water it? The answer is never. Just to shortchange that one. So you've got that. Plus you've got profitable. Um, I don't have the gumption and desire to do this, but... Uh, for instance, there's a corkscrew rush, a dwarf, a dwarf horsetail rush that I grow that actually I'm starting to stop growing because once you get it established, it gets to be almost a plague. But people love it. And it sells for a little bitty clump for like 10 bucks for a little bitty clump of it. With one big vat of that stuff going and pulling off and doing divisions of it, I could sell as much of that on eBay as I could ever want to sell. And that's a profit. And there's a lot of other aquatic plants and aquatic irises and things like that. Um, Botswana Wonder is another one. It's like a surface plant. There's like so many plants that are not considered invasive, uh, that are not banned, that could be sold as a side hustle. So plants can be for, for, for food, for function, or for profit, for froggies, right? Not just frogs. Um, and then for an aquaponics component. So, to me, if I do what I said with the water crumbs, I don't really consider that aquaponics. I guess technically it is, but when people say aquaponics, that's not what they mean. Um, but I do have a 300-gallon pond with two 50-gallon ebb and flow beds, and it grows the shit out of celery and green onions and stuff like that for me. And I did that one as an aquaponics thing, but I also, and I finally dressed up all the flow-through beds and all, I, I did it to be like something that if somebody came here with their wife and their wife's like, well, I want to do aquaponics, but I don't want these big IBCs and shit. I want it to be nice. Um, you could make it prettier than I've made it, but what I've made is pretty. Um, some of the stuff I grow is a bit bushy and weedy and stuff like that, um, but I've had guys with their wives here look great right at it and go, well, I don't really want you to grow that in it, but th I'd be okay with this. This is pretty. So we can have a pretty pond that also does aquaponics, and we can grow food from that. And then aquaponics components like ebb and flow beds are great because they're biological filtration. So let's talk about some pond ideas. You want to build a pond. And so you're saying, well, what do I build a pond out of? There's more than I'm going to give you today, but I'm going to give you some of the things I've done or seen that have worked really well and are easy to do because what you need to buy, you can just go get or have shipped to your house. So first is stock tanks, you know, that, that cows drink out of. And I guess you could make a pretty good-looking pond out of one of the 100-gallon Rubbermaids, but that's really not where I would go. With a pond, I do think you want a certain amount of surface area. So, like, the smallest thing that I've built ponds out of are the six-foot-long oval galvanized stock tanks. I have three of those plumbed common, meaning they're all on the same level, and basically it's like having one big one, but they're in three sections. They overflow to a 470-gallon, which is a six-foot round, two-foot deep uh, galvanized stock tank that's in the ground some, and then that overflows to a much lower tank that's buried almost to the, you know, almost two feet in the ground, almost completely to surface level. Um down from that and the pump sits in that lower one pumps up to the three overflows the three into the one back to the bottom uh, those are great and that's one system that's a little over 1200 gallons but I have five places that things can go that maybe don't go together and there's some complexity there and I'll talk a little bit about more about how complexity is good but also opens more points of failure in a bit but that's one type I think 
I have no problem with using galvanized. I did it. People told me all my fish were going to die. The system's now seven years old. It has no pinholes, no rust, no problems, and nothing has ever died in it, not due to the fact that it was galvanized anyway. Uh, my plants aren't contaminated. Blah, all the excuses, all the freakouts, not there. But it is something with a life expectancy, right? Like eventually it will see what, what galvanized is, has zinc in it. And basically, the zinc sacrifices itself for the rest of the metal. And eventually, when all the zinc is sacrificed, you end up with, uh, you, you will get rust and you will get holes. So when that happens, I can either line them and extend them for another who knows how long, or I can replace them, or I can just do something different. Um, it's not that big a deal at that point. I've got other systems now. So it's, it's a fine starting point, and I think you're looking at at least a 15-year life expectancy out of a, of a pond like that. And the interesting thing about a stock tank like that is they actually last longer when you keep them full than when they're empty. I mean, if they, if they rusted through in a couple of years, farmers and ranchers wouldn't use them. But the plastic ones are going to last longer than you. And they, they used to only come in blue, and now they come in a gray, and that makes them more aesthetically pleasing. And if I was going to build something like I have with those steel ones again, I would go to uh, the plastics. And they, I've seen the plastics when it comes to round in 6-foot and 8-foot. And 8-foot ones are huge. Um, there's a lot you can do with one of those. And if you can bury it most of the way and then maybe box it just a little bit and fill that boxed area in, you can make it look very aesthetically pleasing without being flushed to the ground. And that will help with some um, invasive critter problems that we'll talk about in a little bit. But that would be where I would go today. I would use some sort of plastic double wall insulated stock tank if I'm going to go the stock tank route. If you get a good deal on galvanized, you get them for free because they're you know, used but they still are serviceable, whatever, that would be fine. If you're worried about the zinc and you have access to the steel and you don't want to use steel, get a pond liner and line it. It's and then if all of, for all effective purposes, it's a lined pond. It doesn't matter what it's in. There are also ways you can paint them, but I my jury's out on how effective that really is and how long it lasts. Next is uh, and I would say that your stock tank ponds you're looking at anywhere between 100 to 800 gallons somewhere in that range, depending on what you're using. And obviously, if we take two 400 gallons and we connect them together, we have 800 gallons. So we can go much bigger in a system and a cascading effect using stock tanks. Wood frame ponds, which is what we call Miyagi's, and if anybody still doesn't know, we call them a Miyagi pond for Mr. Miyagi from the Karate Kid movies of the 80s, which was one really great movie, at least for what it was, a second okay movie, and the third stupidest movie ever made. The third Karate Kid movie was the worst absolute movie ever produced by Hollywood where they really tried to make a movie for the theaters. I mean, it was so cartoonishly horrible with the villains. It was awful. I've said my piece on that. But Mr. Miyagi, I've always thought, was a cool guy. And my buddy David, who I was mentioning earlier, who has the swimming pool pond, he looked at the first one I built, which was an 8 by 8 one out of 4 by 4s and went, it's, you know, he goes, not to crap on your carpentry or anything, but you're not that good, you know? And uh, I didn't think it would come out. He said, it looks like something that belongs to Mr. Miyagi's backyard, and hence the term Miyagi came up. Um, I have built one, the biggest I've built right now is 12 foot. I built it with structural wood screws and 4 by 4s. The structural wood screws are the ones that are designed, if I'm going to take a 4x4 four four and attach it to, or you know, a 2x6 or whatever, I'm going to attach it to the wall of a house as a ledger board for a deck. This is what you use to replace lag bolts. They're nowhere near as thick, but they are as strong. And I've had people question their strength. And here's the, the reality about their strength. As long as you use enough of them, 
the strength is irrelevant because the strength exceeds the capacity for weight bearing of a 4x4. In other words, the 4x4 will shatter around the bolt before the bolt will give. So that's what I use. I've also I built the first one with the big galvanized spikes that are I think they're about 8 or 10 inches. And they're a bitch. And they have a propensity when you're driving them in with a sledgehammer, even if you auger bit drill in for them, to sometimes turn and damage your 4x4s. You also, if you make a mistake with one, you're living with it. So I would go with the structural wood screws. I think the savings going with galvanized spikes when I did the math was about 10%. Now, either way, if you build a timber frame pond that is significant in its height... So we're not talking four foot in the ground and two foot above ground. We're talking three, four feet above grade, so it's a lot of timber. As expensive as the 4x4s will be, the structural wood screws will cost more. You will have more money in the hardware than the lumber. Because a 12-foot pressure-treated 4x4 is not that expensive. Uh, one thing I didn't do with mine, and it probably will affect the life expectancy of it, though I have an idea to pour concrete footings around it and mitigate this uh, eventually if I ever need to, is I think it would make a lot of sense to take your bottom course or any that would go below grade and just coat them in like tar or something or some sort of heavy preservative beyond the pressure treating anything that would extend their life um, if you set them on cinder block which is a great way to build structures like sheds and all it really won't help if you then fill them in creating good drainage around it will, will help extend that um, but the best thing would be to at least coat the bottom of them in, in something that's more of a preservative and not have them go below grade at all if you have soil that you can work with and then any depth will go down from there. What you might want to do then is like scrap plywood or whatever, build retaining walls so you get a nice square wall and don't kill yourself with a cave-in or get hurt with a cave-in and you can even leave that and let that eventually rot. It won't matter because then you'll have dirt against your liner. Okay, so either way that you do this, what I love about the wood frame ponds, people keep asking me, is there an instructional on how to build it? Honestly, if you can't look at those and say, oh, I see what he did, I don't know that you can build one, and I think anybody can build one. So I think when you're asking, like, how did you build that, you're, you're looking for there to be some kind of something beyond what you see, and there isn't. All you want to do is you make sure you use enough of those structural wood screws so that you have the structural integrity uh, to be able to do that. And I believe I went with eight per linear individual, so 32 per course. And you can certainly, as you get closer to the top, use less. Your, your, your pressure is going to be highest at the bottom up to about the center, and it will begin to decline. I can't go through the physics behind that, but there is nowhere near the pressure at the top that there is at the bottom. Um. Can you go bigger than 12 feet is something I've been asked. You can. Should you? I don't know. I haven't done the math. I would say that if you wanted to go bigger than a 12 by 12 square pond, you're better off designing like a, a sextagon or an octagon or something like that and using 8-footers. Eight 8-footers eight in an octagon would be a huge pond, and it would be very similar to an above-ground pool in shape. And I never did the math to figure out how big it would be, but... I think I thought about it, I looked at it, and it was too big for the area that I had to work with, and I went with a 12 by 12. 12 by 12 is huge. You're going to have about three or $4,000 into a pond that size, and I think that it is incredibly and totally worth doing. 
Um, you can look at the picture in today's show notes, and you can decide for yourself. But I stained it with kind of a honey oak stain color, and it, to me, is gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, what about using cedar, somebody asked, about for it to be more weatherproof? It would be really expensive. Um, maybe what you would then do is use cedar for your first or second course and then go to pressure treated above that and do something to kind of hide the contrast if, unless you liked it for some reason. Um, but what's nice about the wood frame ponds is you can make them deep relative to surface area. And the deeper, the more stable everything is, the longer the water will stay cool, and the longer it will stay warm, etc. We'll talk about keeping it through um, winter in a bit. Concrete poured ponds, I believe, are limited only by your budget and your skill. But basically, you're making a in-ground pool. And concrete can crack and things like that, so I don't want to get into that. I just wanted to acknowledge there's nothing wrong with that approach, nor would there be doing something akin to a Miyagi pond uh, built out of You know, mortar and cinder block and rebar and, 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 and pouring that. And that would be permanent. And again, that might actually really be nice to do a couple, three high, so it's only a couple feet above grade and deep into the ground with a liner would be another way to do that. Um, or kind of a lot bigger in surface area and maybe only even a couple, three feet deep. I would say in most instances, unless you have a plan to have to, how to mitigate things, you want to be two foot of depth minimum. I'm doing one now, it's going to be a foot. But I'll tell you everything I did to mitigate that when we get to it. And that's the one we're going to go to next, which is spill trays. Um, I found these industrial solvent spill trays at Facebook Marketplace. Actually, my buddy Michael found it and texted it to me. He said, hey, check these out. Um, they were like 400 bucks new, and I got them used for like 60 bucks a piece delivered. And I bought two, and I don't even know what I'm going to do with the second one now, but I'm like, somebody will want it, if nothing else. Um, but these are about six foot by nine and a half foot rectangle. Very, very heavy duty. They're designed to put into shops and things like that where solvents and things like that might go into them. Um, to make sure that they were safe, I hosed them out really good. I smelled them. They didn't stink, and I set them in the sun uh, for a couple, three months and let them bake in the sun. And there's no solvent smell, nothing, so uh, I'm pretty happy with uh, using them now. Um, the, what I did to mitigate the fact that it's only a foot deep is, number one, it's in the ground. Below grade, because of surface contact, is going to reduce heat. Number two, it's inside my aviary, so my ducks can't get in there and poop. More on that in a bit. Number three, since it's inside the aviary, it's really easy to throw a piece of 60% shade cloth over the top of it. Next, the way I'm designing it, about half of the water is shaded by features in and on the water itself, like an overflow pond, like um, a ramp for, for critters to get in and out. And also, there's a lot of shade on this pond. And if I have any temperature problems, I'll continue to mitigate until I don't. So when you go down, and a lot of the prefab ponds and stuff like you can buy, the perforated, the preformed shell ponds, are around a foot deep. And you really need a shaded or mostly shaded or you know not all day sun area for that. And surface vegetation like lily pads or floating surface vegetation helps with that as well. Uh, but definitely you want to be in the ground with those. 
they are the best for habitat ponds because critters can get in and out. That means they also, if you have critters like dogs and shit, uh, ducks definitely, and we'll say more on all of this in a bit, you need some way to keep them out. Humans can get in, but dogs, dogs can mess things up. More on that in a bit on how, uh, but waterfowl like ducks, geese, etc. The ponds of this size, they must not be able to get into them. Um, they will turn a beautiful, biologically balanced, crystal clear bit of water into green, stinking muck almost instantly. Almost instantly. Um, and I know you saw some lady on YouTube do duck ponics or whatever. She's using Muscovy ducks which, if anything, is the least nasty duck. As far as nastying things up, it's Muscovy's. She had a very small amount. She had a very large system. And she had a very balanced system. If you put in something like a 470-gallon stainless steel stock tank and you let ducks go in there, in one day it will be messed up. And in one week it will be green with dead, stinking fish. You have been warned. Uh, but... The shallow spill trays are great for habitat. So are the preformed ponds and fish and things like that can go in the well. Just understand you have to mitigate the effect of the sun on those shallower ponds. Next up is lined in-ground ponds. This is where you dig a hole and make a pond in the ground. Uh, probably the best bet, probably the most economical. If you have, you know, 99% of you can, can do this. Um, they also do seem to me to make a lot of sense to kind of still bring up above grade a little bit unless you can get really creative with how you allow water to flow in and out of them and like micro earthworks, sills, swales, and stuff that I can't get into today. Because if you have a small pond and surface water can just flow into it and you haven't set up ways to mitigate that, it's going to sediment and success very, very quickly. I said this last week, but freshwater ponds all success. That means they sediment They go from being a big, empty hole with almost no life in it to being at their peak where they're beautiful and they have all kinds of emergent and, and, and floating vegetation and, and subsurface vegetation and critters living in them. And then they begin to shrink in volume as they sediment up. If you think about the fact that if you have floating vegetation every year and that vegetation dies, what happens to it? Does a magical pondweed fairy come take it all out of the pond? No, it sinks to the bottom of the pond. Well, what happens to it then? It breaks down, mostly anaerobically, and it turns into a sediment. And then it repeats itself. And every year, that grows. And all the stuff gets washed into it. And eventually, a pond becomes a bog, and a bog becomes a field. And in a little pond, the speed of that is much faster. So we need to think about how we manage it, how we drain it and refill it, how we dredge it, what have you. But lined in ground ponds, you can make look more natural than anything else I've talked about before. Even like the Miyagi's, beautiful, but it's clearly artificial, and that's why I like the square design and all the things I did around it uh, with the you know the kind of very symmetrical, very formal shape of the garden beds and all. Um, so you're you're working with what you have, which man made this. So let's make let's let's accentuate that, and let's put lots of natural elements into this man made thing. If you wanted to make something where you walk by and it looks like a natural little pond. Bentonite or shaped right, rubber lined, both of those can be done. The thing with a rubber lined pond is you see a rubber liner. So ways you mitigate that, number one, is if you go big enough, you have a very gradual slope that, that you can actually build up some sediment, some soil, some gravel, something like that around the edges with some sort of a block so it doesn't cave off in two and you can hide it. 
The other way is to let it drop off pretty abruptly and then take something like flagstone or slate or something like that and cap all around it so you hide the edge. And then anything you can do to like use logs for entries and stuff like that. I've seen some very, very natural, very, very beautiful ones. And, of course, there's masonry ones that have rock and stone and things like that that are done by professionals. Not what we're talking about today. But if you want to do that, go for it. I'm going to put that under concrete poured, and you're just dressing it up with rock. So those are kind of all your ways to go. The easiest thing is stock tanks. And I would say the second easiest is a preformed pond shell or a spill tray type arrangement. But since they're relatively shallow, they're more work to manage. The next, I would say, on ease is going to be a wood frame pond. They're hard to beat for ease of use, and I've seen some really simple ones done with landscape timbers. Eight-foot landscape timber, chop saw, cut every other timber in half, four by eight, just like a raised bed, put it together a couple feet high, throw a pond liner in it, put one more cap rail on top of it. I've seen some of those, and I've seen people build those and go, wow, that's easy. And I've seen people end up with like their, like their whole backyard lined with them, almost like fences and stuff. And it's just awesome. Is awesome and it's easy and that's not expensive. That's the least expensive way I actually think to do the landscape timbers uh, with either spikes or structural wood screws because you don't need that many because you're not going that big, right? You eight by four, you don't have, and if you only go two feet deep, you do not have a lot of pressure in that environment. And those are things could be done if you as long as let's say the deck had the integrity could be done like as rails around a deck. And what I would probably do is if you had a deck that was just above grade, just put it off the deck, let the ground bear the weight, and still you could make it like, you could you could basically rail in a deck with a couple, three of those. I don't know how I feel about it. If you look at my gardens, I went with, they're 12 foot along the back, 8 foot along the front at right angles. So they're basically... It's like taking two 4x8 beds and a 4x4 four four bed as your corner. You have to look at it, maybe understand that. And they have a uh, pretty big right angle then, obviously, perfect 90-degree angle on the inside and the outside of that dimension. I don't know if that makes any sense. It's shaped like a big L like or a, more like a V because they're uniform. I don't know how that joint would handle the pressure of water, and I don't necessarily think I would recommend that. So if I wanted that kind of a shape, I think I would do two separate structures. I also, like I said, I went 12 feet along the back wall of those, and that's a 8-foot and a 4-foot uh, piece of uh, landscape timber going one line, one linear dimension. That'd be a weakness, and I don't know that I would do that more than maybe 18 to 20 inches depth with water. If I did, I would do something to reinforce that joint, and I'm not sure what, because I'm not recommending that. But... Again, 8x8 eight eight and 4x8 with landscape timbers. I've seen that done in tons of aquatic forums, and everybody that does it's happy. So when people say, I credit the Miyagi, I really didn't. I saw what people did with landscape timbers, said I can do that better with 4x4s and go bigger. Um, this is a, the wood frame drop a liner in is something tons of people do. And I actually say, from a standpoint of making it look really nice, it might be the easiest thing you can do. Four by eight, two and a half feet deep, landscape timbers, screw it together, drop in a liner, put a nice cap rail on it. Um, one thing about the wood frame ponds, I always forget to do this and tell you about it. I didn't do it the first one, and I wish I did. The second one, we got up to the, as deep as we were going to go, we put the liner in. We let the liner overhang. We took another course of four by fours and capped it. When we put that cap on, we took 
silicon, GE number one silicon, which is freshwater fish safe, and we put a bead, a big bead of silicon, and then we sandwiched that board on top of the liner and drilled through. One board, we cut a notch in, really not a notch, more like a ledge, and that's the overflow point. So we cut a sill in where we wanted the water to overflow, and we let the liner kind of drape down on that. And what happens now is if there's a big rain event or something and the pond fills up to the point where it hits that top course, it drains out the sill, and even though the wood gets wet, it doesn't get wet for very long before it goes back down to the liner level. If you don't do that, the water will seep through that top course, and that's not good for the long-term health of the structural integrity. So that's my addition and I've never seen anybody do that and the first time my pond overflowed and I saw it all water leaking out through the top it it didn't hurt anything directly but I'm like I'm, I got a fix for that tube of silicon alright so next on developing the biology in your pond that supports fish and other life number one in my opinion you need a pump ponds of the size we're talking here I know some people have managed to make still ponds work and all um to me with any quantity of fish in there no 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 you want a pump and I actually think the smart way to design a pond is with two pumps and you can have one big pump and one smaller pump and you can find figure out things for those pumps to do why two <laughs> two is one and one is none pumps go down pumps break pumps clog pumps have problems If you have a second pump in your system and your first pump goes, which is a real sound they actually make sometimes when they die, I've heard it, um, that other pump's still running. Now, maybe that other pump can't run your pond for two weeks consecutively in the summer and keep everything alive. But it can probably run it for a day or two so that you see that you have a problem and then you end up replacing that pump. Number two, I recommend that you find the budget to have whatever your main pump is, your big pump, to have another one of them sitting on the shelf in the box. When it shows up, you open the box, you plug it in, it works. You put it back in the box, you put the box on the shelf. If you have a pump die, you take the pump off the shelf and you plug it in. Minimum, the big pump, and if you have two pumps and a smaller, lesser pump, well, you have that on reserve too. If you don't have the exact same pump, you have a pump that will easily, immediately drop in and install as a replacement. In other words, whatever your adapters are and everything like that to get to your main distribution, you either it either fits or you've already fabricated, this is my backup. This comes out, this goes in, boom, you should be able to swap a pump in 15 minutes or less. I can swap my pumps in every system I have in 5 minutes or less. It will take me longer to go get the pump off the shelf and take it out of the box and get all the packaging to not blow away in the wind and make a mess than it will to actually put the pump in. If you can install things like unions, PVC unions and things like that, where you can unscrew them and not have to worry about things coming apart on you, all the better. But at least a pump and really two pumps. And again, they don't have to be the same pump. They don't have to both be as heavy-duty pumps. But there is a wisdom in having, you know, if we have one system and two pumps, you have two backup pumps. If you have one system and one pump, but you have two of them in the, in the system, you only need one backup pump. The odds that both of them are going to die at the same time, pretty low. 
I use two main pumps, a very, very small pump and a larger pump, and I keep a backup for both. And in some instances where I've used, like, I've had like an old smaller pump or whatever, it would not take much effort to put one of my standard pumps into that system. I'm just not going to put one in there because I already had one. So, I've, again, I have quite a few things going on with hydroponics, aquaponics, etc. all going on now. Uh, Allied Aqua, uh, 550 gallon is my small pump of choice, and a Danner, either two or 3,000 gallon, and both of them work great, uh, is my, my big pump of choice. And, you know, you're talking about about 150 bucks for the Danner, you're talking about 50 bucks for the Allied Aqua. Why? Because I tried them and they worked, and I don't believe in changing things if I don't have to, if I have something that works. But you can use whatever you want, but have a backup. What you want to do with your pumping is move water as far as possible within your system. So there's two ways to approach this. One is a cascading system. has multiple contained sections, like my cascading steel pond. So, again, with that pond, there's a six-foot round stock tank at the very bottom that acts as the sump. Sump is, regardless of what it is, it's the lowest point in your system is your sump. So it's not a dedicated sump. It's a pond. But it's the lowest pond in a system of ponds, so it effectively is the sump. So there's a pump sitting in there. It pumps water underground, and it goes to three steel tanks, 170 gallons apiece, six foot long, that are elevated. They're at the front of one of my shop buildings, and they're facaded in with a little wall that my wife painted this pretty blue color. Um, and then it has three points of delivery, one to each of those ponds. And those ponds are all connected together through a two-inch bulkheads and a return line that goes back into the rest of the system. So each one of those has a swing valve, uh, a half-inch swing valve, that we set to a given pressure so they blow water in there and make a disturbance. Try to distribute about the exact same amount to each of the three. They're all plumbed common. They're level with each other. Their overflow is set. They overflow into another round 470-gallon pond that's a little higher up. It overflows back to the original pond. By pumping water to that top pond and having it cascade all the way back down, you can see how that water is being thrown far away and coming back, and that's creating a lot of current. That's one way to do it. In my Miyagi pond, what I did there is I took the pond pump and I put it in a central location of the pond. So it's the center of one wall. It then distributes to all four corners. Two legs goes out to two corners, distributes water, and then continues past there and distributes water, again, with these with one-inch swing valves. And I use a thing called, I call it an air stack, and I, I think I invented it. I don't know if somebody else has ever done it, but basically it's a half of a five-gallon bucket with a piece of four-inch pipe in it, and it's cemented in there so it doesn't float out. And then the pipe sticks up, and right at the water level, there's like three slits on both sides. So the water drives in there, it forces it down in the pipe, it comes back up, and bubbles just come out of both sides of it. That is worked really well, and what it does is it lets me have surface vegetation without that water beating the shit out of it and killing it and tearing it all up. But it also creates a lot more airflow, but the big thing I'm getting at here, no matter how you do it, you want to move the water from one point to another point. That creates a cycle and a flow of the water. So from the corner to the center with a with a, with a um, fountain that goes 360 degrees, as long as it doesn't spray past the edge of your pond, that would be cool. That would be a really good way to do that. From a center wall to all four corners, again, you're creating flow. But create flow, move water. If all you do is just recirculate, then you're going to have dead spots. There's a lot of ways you can do it. I've seen people take and put their, um, their exhaust valves so they kind of 
make a whirlpool. So you, you kind of point them all the same direction. So each corner, or if you have a round pond, maybe you have like two or three of them, and you kind of create a, a, a whirlpool. Now, it, it, not to the point where like you literally have like a cyclone vortex, but there's a basic flow and movement of water. Well, you don't have any dead spots. The deeper you can go with your pump, generally the better, but you don't want to be on the bottom. Because if you're deep with your pump, you're pulling water from one zone up to another zone, up to the surface. If you, The reason you don't want to be on the bottom, the dirtiest water is on the surface, and the dirtiest water is on the bottom. The middle of the water column is your cleanest water as far as sediment. So taking something like a cinder block, or a cinder block and a half cinder block, on the bottom of a pond, and setting the pump on that, that what that will do is enable that pond that pump to sit in the center of your water column. So you're still pulling water from below to the above. You're dealing in different temperature zones. You're creating different temp temperature flow, but you're not sitting in the sediment because it's going to clog your pump a lot faster. Give ponds time to develop biology, specifically your nitrite nitrates nitrate nitrite cycle before stocking to whatever you consider your capacity in fish. So anybody that's ever kept aquariums knows that what will happen, you set up a new aquarium, it's basically dead. You get it going with bacterium, and you put some fish in it. And the fish poop and pee, and they create ammonia, ammonium nitrate, and that nitrate eventually breaks down to nitrite, and then that nitrite can be handled uh, by bacteria that either consume it, plants that consume it, or fish don't at least die from it. It takes time for that cycle to develop. And we have what we call sacrificial fish that we'll put into a, a system like that. Um, and we do testing and all kinds of things. And what I do is nothing. I put the system in place. I put some sacrificial fish in there, and I wait about a month. And I start adding fish slowly from there. And if I see any problems with my fish, I stop for a while. And the type of fish that I use, which I'll talk about in a minute, are generally very hardy fish that you can get away with making some mistakes. But do not heavily stock a brand-new pond. You're just wasting your money or your energy or your time, and you're killing fish, and not in a good way. Um, what will happen is the nitrates will spike, and it takes a spike in them so that the bacteria can then develop. There's a bacteria that actually take that, and they break it down, and they have to increase in number to where they can handle it, and the food has to be there before they'll grow. You can do a lot of things to, to, to increase this. I usually take water from a healthy pond and add it to a new pond is the day I set it up a couple, couple gallons or three um, you can buy beneficial bacteria but it doesn't matter because if you put bacteria into a place where they don't have enough food they don't multiply and until you get the quantity you need and the colonization of surface area you need you, you, you're, you're pissing in the wind so give it some time and give meat give it something to colonize So bacteria will colonize the walls of a tank. But things like cinder blocks and things like that, they have all those little recessed points, all different types of things you can put in for structure. Any surface area, those bacteria will colonize. If you build an ebb and flow bed, even if you do it only for biological filtration, even if it's relatively small, I want you to think about it compared to a fish tank. So I have a 55-gallon fish tank here, and I have an over-the-back filter in it with media in it. And that media is probably about the same as two fists Two of my fists would fit inside that filter. And it does great filtration with some uh, live plants and stuff like that for uh, a 55-gallon aquarium. Now think about even something like a 7-gallon 
concrete mixing tray turned into an ebb and flow bed for a 300 gallon pond. The ratio of surface area there is hugely it favors the ebb and flow bed. So get something in there for surface for your bacteria. Um, keep any waterfowl out of your ponds. Just don't even let them know they can get in. Ducks will destroy it, like I said earlier. Dogs will F up a pond of this size if you let them. And I say sometimes, and it depends. But just assume they will. When I first put the steel frame ponds in, I didn't have ducks yet. So I just put them in. And I didn't have grandchildren yet. So I wasn't worried about them falling in it. So everything was great. And then I put in some water, uh, water plants and stuff like that. And I'd go look and my water plants are gone. And it took me a while to figure out Charlie was a puppy and he would like, oh, gee, that's something. And he would take it out of the water and they would play in it and they would mess it up. So we ended up putting some fencing around them. So if it's something a dog can get into, he probably will. And if you have young pups especially, you know, there's a floating thing. I want to play with that. So just bet that dogs will be a problem uh, unless you have very well-trained, well-disciplined dogs that you know you can teach not to jack it up. Um, create hides. Uh, I do that with cinder block. I do that with t tile and cinder block. It's such a versatile, inexpensive tool. You take two cinder blocks, you set them on the on the on the bottom of your pond. Now you have tunnels. Now you take a piece of floor ceramic floor tile and set it on top of that. If it's a bigger piece of tile, you separate your cinder blocks and you put the tile across it. Let's say the tile looks like for a that makes it look like wood flooring. Let's say you have a 24 inch plank of that. Maybe you need two or three of those for the width of a center block. So you set them a couple feet apart, and then you set three or four of those pieces of tile on there. Now you have the tunnels for your center block, and you have the underspace of your shelf. Take your center blocks and put two side by side with the, with the, with the holes facing front to back, and then put your tile across left to right. Now you've got four tunnels that are about a foot long each, Two for each set of cinder blocks. Plus you've got the wide gap. Plus you've got a shelf. Now you take flower pots, you set them onto the shelf. If the water's deeper than that, make another stack of cinder blocks. Now you have another set of tunnels. Plus you have a deeper subset underneath your tile. If you want to do more, put the tile on the first level, then put another stack of cinder blocks, then put another stack of tile. Now you've got multiple places that fish can go and hide and feel safe and secure and defend. Plus, what have I said about biology? Now you've got more surface area. So in my 12 by 12 pond, I probably have a thousand feet of surface, linear surface area like that in 144 linear feet because of all the different ways and things contort and contude around that. Plus all the little holes and divots and things like that for the bacteria at the micro level to live in. More edge equals more biological diversity, which equals more biological stability. Okay. Um, a dedicated fish kindergarten is great. So the way I did that in my Miyagi, I took a 100-gallon Rubbermaid structural foam stock tank, I took a half-inch drill bit, and I drilled a whole bunch of holes in it, so it almost looks like a colander. And then I sunk it and set it on top of two center blocks so the lip of it is just above the surface of the pond. That way water flows in and out, and basically the water inside that 100-gallon tank is the same as the water outside of it. There's no pumps, there's no nothing, it just sits there on top of those cinder blocks. Now the cinder blocks themselves, fish habitat. The space between the cinder blocks below the floor of the 
uh, tank, fish habitat. Inside the, sim- the, the tank, fish kindergarten. If I get baby, let's say I go out and I catch, uh, I take a cast net down to the farm pond, and I want to increase the amount of sunfish in my pond. Okay, so I go down there, I throw a couple handfuls of corn in the water, count to 20, throw the cast net, there's a hundred little bluegills in there that are about an inch and a half long. If I put them in my pond, I have just fed my channel catfish. They will eat them. They'll eat them all. They love to eat those. That's their favorite food. So I throw the net again, and I have about 200 of them. I come home, put 100 of them in the fish kindergarten, and 100 of them in the pond. I've just fed my catfish a really good meal for a few weeks. It'll take them a while to run them down and catch them. A few of them will survive, but most of them will get eaten. I have another 100 now. They're in that 100-gallon tank. They start to grow. I feel like my catfish could use some more food. Throw some fish food on the surface, dip net, poop, throw them in. Catfish are going to eat them. I can let some of them grow out to be replacement fish, and when they're big enough that the catfish won't eat them, transfer them into the main pond. Since the holes in the side are about a half inch in diameter, minnows can swim in and out of there. So minnows can go in there and be protected. Sooner or later, minnows are actually pretty smart, and they figure out, hey, it's safe in here, it's not safe out there, it becomes an area that they inhabit. You also want to create skinny water, all types of little hides and things like that, outside of the kindergarten where your minnows and small fish can seek relative safety. In my eight-foot timber frame pond the first year, I just kind of set it up with the shelving and put it there, and I put a bunch of bluegills in there, and I put a bunch of minnows in there, and in three weeks I could not see a minnow in the thing. I put in a lot more vegetation and things like that. Now minnows swim around there. Also, the bluegills have matured. They get fed really well. They're less aggressive on the minnows, and you see the minnows eating a a fish pellet, and then a bluegill comes up and takes the pellet, and all the minnows scatter. And I'm sure some of them still get eaten, but they're not as heavily predated upon as when I first put them in there. They were wild fish. They were used to eating minnows. Now they're used to being fed. So between the habitat increase, I can now have minnows in the pond that feed the fish but don't get wiped out. All right? So that's all good things to think about. Um, and I love surface vegetation, but I'm going to say that it comes with some issues. Uh, number one, you can get too much of it and you block all light out and any subsurface vegetation dies. Uh, number two, it makes it harder to feed. What I like to do with surface vegetation is I like to keep about 85% of the surface of the pond covered with it in the summer and the winter takes care of itself. A lot of it dies back. And it is the best mulch for nutrient and mulch and watering that you will ever get. So if you put gardens near it, you just pull it off and put it in your garden. And that's kind of the way I handle it. Um, duckweed will clog things up. So if you're running overflows or intakes or what have you, and you have duckweed or even you know, water lettuce or other floating vegetation, anything that's not anchored, it, will, it can get into that and clog it up. The way that I handle it, I take whatever penetration bulkhead, whatever, for an overflow, and I put it well below the surface. And I know you're thinking, you fool. Your pond will drain down to that level. Hold on. And then I'll put some sort of an intake there. Usually I'll take, a, like, let's say it's a one-inch bulkhead. Well, I'll put a piece of one-inch pipe in it, and then I'll have that pipe be, you know, two feet long with a plug at the end. And I'll take a chop saw, and I'll cut a bunch of little, um, little slots in it. So now, even though it's a one-inch pipe, there's five inches of opening across that two feet. That way, if any part gets clogged, there's still plenty of flow through to the capacity of the pipe. On the other end where the pipe comes out, I'll bring that up, and I'll control the overflow on the outside. That way, all your overflows from in the pond 
and it's from lower level water that's cooler than the surface level water that's warmer. And I can change the, the depth with a loose-fitted pipe just by moving it up or down. So the outside controls the depth of the inside. Right? So you can have a hole at the bottom of a 10-foot tank, and the pipe comes up to 9 feet, you'll hold 9 feet of water. Really, really simple. And that way your surface vegetation doesn't get in there. The other thing is, if you have surface disturbance, which is great, it screws up floating vegetation. So one way to deal with that is create barriers that keep your, your surface vegetation on part of your pond, but not where your overflow is. And the other thing is to create barriers that keep things out of where the disturbance is. So my air stacks, that's one of their multiple functions. Not only do they make more air, but by shooting that, those four jets of water into four four-inch pipes, only the area inside the pipe is heavily disturbed. So my water lettuce and duckweed don't get the shit beat out of them by the, the surface agitation, but I get the surface agitation. These are all things that I've learned over the last seven years to think about. Um, some more things I've learned. Have a backup power plan. For me, I have a generator and extension cords. And eventually I'm probably going to bury enough extension cord that I won't even have to run extension cords. That basically I'll just have to switch some plugs and generator sits in one spot, runs all the ponds. That's, that's the long-term plan. Uh, I may even buy, to make my life easier with one section of things, a, a second one of the little cheapo sportsman's generators. Uh, and then I can have two generators and everything running. And you want a backup power solution. Because I've had pumps go down for various reasons. And within, in the summer, within a few hours, you have fish surface breathing. If you see a fish surface breathing, and it ain't a koi eating duckweed, If you see a fish surface breathing, you have probably less than an hour before you have dead fish, and you have a point not long after that, and that could be much shorter if it's a smaller pond. You have a point after that. Even if the fish aren't dead yet, it almost doesn't matter what you do. The damage is already done, and they're going to die. The best thing you can do, if you have well water, and you don't have a way to immediately get the power back on, Take a garden hose, stick it in your pond, put something on it so the hose doesn't fall out, turn the water on and let it overflow. And just run fresh water through it until you can get the power back on. I've done that when I've lost like an individual pump. And I have a pump. I'm going to replace it, but I've got surface-breathing fish. Oh, shit. Right? I don't just need the pump running. I need fresh water. I'll throw the garden hose in there, and I, I've run that. For an hour and run an hour, you know, 500 gallons of water through the pond and pump that nasty uh, ammonia laden shit out of there. You get the new, the new pump in, you know, start pumping water out. And that's another thing you can do. Whenever you install a pump, you can install some valve apparatus with a hose bib. And when you need to lower the level, do a water change, just hook up a hose, run the hose wherever you want it, shut off. The, the, you know, have an output shut, cut off to where the pump's going and then just pump water out. Why are you going to, like, siphon water when you have a pump? Now, know this. Do not walk away while that's going on. Or set a timer. Do something so you don't forget. Because a couple things can happen. Uh, one, you can forget about it, and then your pump stops, and then your fish are going to die. Uh, um, two, you can pump the water down till the pump burns itself out. That's why I like float valves. Uh, but 
make sure you don't kind of ignore that when you have that process going on. And what you can do is once you lower the water a certain level, and you know how long it takes to, let's say, take it's a 1,000-gallon pond, 200, 20%, 200 gallons out. If you want to take a 40% water change, once you know how long that is, throw your garden hose in. If you're on well, turn the water on and run it for that much longer. That way you got new water in while, while old water's coming out still. And then you go back, shut your pump, shut your, your discharge off, put your pump back to normal, and let the water come back up to where it belongs. Um, next, never overfeed your fish. The number one way to kill fish, if, not, if there's no mechanical failures, is to overfeed them. And this is where you got to be careful. If you let kids feed fish, don't let them have access to more food than is all the food the fish are getting that day. So you, if you're going to, like when I feed fish, I get a big scoop, and I scoop it full, and I go around, and I kind of feed, and I wait. And eh, they ate it all. They can have a little bit more. Okay, they ate all that a little bit more. They left a few pieces. They're done. That's kind of how I do it. Um, if I'm going to let Tegan feed the fish, I say, well, I know that this much is not too much. It might not be as much as I want. It's not optimal to get most growth out of them that day, but it's not going to be too much no matter what. And get that much food, put it in a cup. We go with that cup. If she grabs the cup and throws it all in there, eh, you got to throw it one time. But and it's all gone now. But I know it's not going to be dump, and now I got to be raking food out because I'm going to kill my fish. If you feel that you've overfed your fish, fish are not people. Fish go long periods of time without food. They don't die. If you feel that you've overfed your fish, don't feed them at all for a day or two. If you feel that you've overfed your fish, there's a bunch of floating food. And they're not eating it. A pool skimmer net is a great thing to have. Take it out, throw it on the ground. The chickens eat it like compost, whatever. Don't leave it sitting there and rot and go nasty. Overfeeding could be you fed them too much and they produce too much waste. That's bad, which much worse is rotting food that they didn't eat. That's really, really bad. All right? um, valves work for flow control. I use them for flow control. What I mean by that is when you're pumping from one pond to another and overflowing back to the first, it is almost inevitable that the pump you're going to use has the capacity to push more water than your return can handle. Because if you don't do that, you probably have a weakness with how much head pressure you have. You have all pumps degrade in performance over time. You want to start with something that's more than you need. Maybe not a lot more, but more. So, what we can do then is when we can vent some pressure. So the pump is sitting in pond A. The pipe comes out of pond A, goes to pond B, and pond B re returns to pond A, just to be clear on how it works. Well, what we do is we take a T, we come off of the supply line, And we pump pond A water back into pond A water, just in a round circle. And then the rest of the pressure goes up to pond B. Okay, By letting some of that pressure off, we're not putting too much back pressure on the pump, and it will in of itself reduce how much flow goes up to pond B. However, it is still likely the case that it's possible to put too much water in pond B and overflow it onto the ground returns will clog in time as well. Think, no matter what you do with your return, you're going to have to service your return. So some sort of great screen, whatever, you're going to have to reach in there, clean it off, etc. So you can have your return slow down, and then sometimes, as weird as it sounds, you can have your pump kind of speed up. So we need that swing valve or some sort of a valve to control how much actually gets to pond B. Or in some cases, pond B, C, and D, right? Because we're doing, in my, my case, I'm going to three different tanks and splitting the flow. 
and I only want to put so much there so that all the returns can be handled. So I put a swing valve in there. Swing valves also create disturbance. So instead of the water just kind of flowing out, it sprays out. Take a garden hose, turn the water on, water comes out. Put your finger over it, you get pressure. So they're great, and I love them. What you have to be aware of is since you've restricted the opening, it's a point that will eventually begin to clog like a fat guy's arteries. So especially this time of year when there's a lot of new biology, a lot of turnover and things going on in a pond in spring, I have to go out twice a day with my most sensitive system, open the valves all the way up, and close them back down to where I want them. If you don't do that for a day or two in a system when it starts to do this, that valve will clog to the point where it'll trickle, and you might as well not have a pump, and fish will die. Ask me how I know. So... If you're going pond A to pond B and that's all you're doing, this is really easy to manage. If you're going pond A to pond C, pond C to pond B, and back to pond A, it gets more complex. Complexity is good, but complexity has more points of failure. Every step you put in the return is one more place a return can clog, a distribution can clog, etc. And the more you have to be mindful of your valves. If you have a system like a Miyagi that's contained in of itself and it goes to four locations and one overflow, which is how I run things. So I've got one right there at the pump, just and then you're four out to your corners, and one or two of those clog. You know what? It doesn't matter. All the water is only going to one place. There's no return. So that reduces a point of failure. If you have two, two pumps in a pond like that with kind of another disturbance somewhere else, it's, it's very bulletproof unless the power goes out, right? So the simplicity and reduction in complexity gives you less options, less bio area, less overall biological diversity, and less overall stability when it's working properly, but less points of failure. If you have an ebb and flow bed that sits directly over a pond and it leaks, do you care? The answer, in case you aren't sure, is no. You don't care. It leaks into the pond. If you have a supply line leaking from its delivery point over a pond, do you care? No, because it leaks into the pond. If it leaks at the top of a three-tiered system, not into the pond, you are losing water, wasting water, etc. If a pipe blows off that's inside a pond that's self-contained, it just shoots water inside the pond. If it breaks off up top, it can drain your bottom pond. Right? So you have to think about all of this as well. Float valves save lives. Fish lives, that is. So your lowest pond should have a float valve. And even if you don't have a lowest point, you should still have a float valve. In my, my big Miyagi pond, through that 100-gallon stock tank I talked about earlier for fish kindergarten, sunk it in there. The float valves are designed to attach to a stock tank like that. It's about a $20 part. And what they're designed to do is, I have a big 100-gallon tank, and I have cows, and I have a hose bib. So I put the tank out by my fence, and I run a hose to my hose bib, and I run that to the float valve, and I turn it on. And the cows drink the water, and the valve goes down, and the water fills up, and the valve shuts off. And the cow drinks the water, and the water goes down, and the thing fills up, and the water shuts off. That's how they're designed to work. If you take a big tank and you put a small tank inside it for a kindergarten, then you can attach a float valve directly to it, plumb it, and as your water level goes down, 
your water level refills and it refills and you want that in your lowest tank in a system if it's a multi-tiered system. But the other thing you have to think about is if there's ebb and flow in that system, then the water level goes down and the water level comes up like a tide every time that ebb and flow cycles. So you need to figure out when that water is the level you want it and it fills your ebb and flow at the maximum point. So what you do is if you have two ebb and flow beds that are independent, you fill them until they start to overflow, you break the cycle, and you turn the water off. And you fill them both to where they filled at the exact same minute. And you look at the level in your sump. You set your float valve a little below that. And as long as something doesn't break, you will never have to add water if you either have rainwater you can do this with in some sort of a catchment tank on elevation, or you have a well. If you have city water, sadly, this probably isn't an option. You'll have to come up with some other way to do this. Now, a way you could do it would be a couple IBCs, one higher than the other, one with the valve, one without it, and then we take the garden hose and we throw it in the one tank, we dechlorinate it, and then we open it up and let it go into the second tank, and the second tank fills the pond. One way or another, if you can set up a float valve in your system, do it. This is what's nice about stock tank ponds. The float valves are meant to go on stock tanks. They have a bracket that's designed to go over the edge of a stock tank. So if you get yourself an 8-foot round plastic stock tank, bury it 18 inches in the ground and kind of pretty it up around the surface so we don't have dirt flowing into it mucking it up, we can put a float valve right on there And if that pond doesn't pump to another pond, it's, it's bulletproof. We just recirculate water in it, create some kind of surface agitation, and boom, and you're done. You know, and that can be done with some 10-foot 4x4s for that last, maybe just two courses, not really holding anything, just a little bit bigger than the surface, a little bit above grade, really, really prettied in. We could even then take um, like slate or flagstone or something like that and put that all around the top and cover the edge. And it's damn near bulletproof. All we need is a backup power solution. And that's a lot of water. And that's a great little pond. It's easy. If you do um, a timber pond and you don't really have the capacity to put something in, let's say you do my real super easy one that I haven't built, but I've seen a lot built, a 4 by 8 dollar landscape timbers. If you take a paver, like a square paver, the bracket will bolt right to one And then you can set that on edge in your pond. And you can lift it up or lower it down based on how high you want that to go. And that will last forever. And again, now you've got a float valve. Float valves are really, really awesome. Um, next up, if you build it, they will come. And what I mean by that is life forms of all kinds. I just want to restate that again. It, you will be shocked at what shows up. You'll be shocked at the bees that land in your pond and drink the water. I try to create little places where things like critters and stuff can land without drowning themselves. Like some, like just take a pot of mint and let the mint like come over the pot and rest on the surface of the water and root. And that'll be a place that all kinds of little flying critters can land and drink water without drowning themselves. And the ones that do drown themselves are fish eat them. Um, really, really awesome. I want to kind of at that, take this point to talk to you about this new one I'm working on. I got a YouTube playlist I'm starting to put together on it, made out of that. Um, The spill, spill tank, uh, the spill tray. It's inside the aviary. Again, it's about a little over six foot by a little over nine foot in dimensions, buried into the ground a foot deep. I've taken cinder block and built basically two tunnels out of half cinder blocks. Not the half square, but the half rectangle ones, half, 
half thickness, put them on edge, put some tile on them, and made like a ramp up out so critters can get in and out. And it takes these two tunnels. The two pumps are going to go inside those tunnels all the way in the back. That will keep that from being stagnant, pull water through those tunnels, and hide the pumps. One pump is going to go to a 50-gallon stock tank that sits over top of the spill tray and just spills right back in. That's just 50 more gallons of water because 250-gallon tray, but you're never going to fill the capacity. You're going to have some displacement in there. It's maybe 200 gallons of water. Another 50 gallons of water, actually 250 gallons of water. That's a lot more. More water equals more stability. And then I also have another containment thing. And if it leaks, what did I say about things that are over top of a main pond that leak? You don't care. It leaks into the pond. I'm actually going to do cherry shrimp I'll talk about in a minute in that little pond and probably rosy reds in the big pond. But the big thing that's going to be in there is frogs. Frogs and toads. And I'm building this whole, like a deck and everything so you can just sit in there and relax and watch all the critters. I'm also probably going to put a couple ribbon snakes in there, which will eat the rosy reds. That's fine. They're cheap. They're about like seven cents a piece or something like that at Petco. So I can restock if they ever eat them all. Um, Ribbon snakes are cool. They live on fish. Put some green snakes in there. They'll just drink water and live in the plants. And lizards and geckos. and It's going to be a habitat. And the other piece of it, there's another 50-gallon uh, tray. It uses a separate pump. It's going to be ebb and flow. And I'm doing the ebb and flow the new way I do ebb and flow, which is you have a pump on a timer. You have two pipes instead of one pipe inside the bed. One is the delivery pipe, and it's at the very bottom at the, absolutely flush to the bottom of the, of the tank. And then your other one has a stand-up pipe. That's at the level of your water. Timer kicks on. Pump starts pumping water. Tank fills until it hits the height of the overflow valve. It overflows, and it just keeps running, let's say 15 minutes. So now the thing's been full for 15 minutes. Timer kicks off. Boom. The water goes out of the pipe that delivered it and just drains to the bottom. There is no siphon. There is nothing to fail. Water's on, fills up, water's off, water drains. Bulletproof. I'm doing that. Is this an aquaponic system? Not really. I've been thinking about what to plant in there that doesn't need a lot of nutrient, that will just be a good plant for a biofilter that doesn't get too high. And I'm thinking probably something. I could do mint, but it gets way too crazy. I'm thinking maybe more of an annual type of mint, like perilla, uh, like a red perilla, maybe some water... Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, watercress, uh, maybe celery, maybe some green onions, stuff like that. That it doesn't need a lot of nutrient to do well. Um, and but you got that biological filtration component. So two pumps, one on a timer, one on a constant, and it's going to be an awesome place to sit. But it's mainly for frogs and things like that. So like again, these can be for anything. Stocking your pond, always do your minnows and forage fish first. Uh, if you're gonna do if you're gonna do goldfish, you can put your cheap small goldfish in when you do that. They're not gonna eat your minnows, but let them get a breeding population going. Let them ferret out where they want to be before you put anything in there that will eat them. Um, then create hides that are specific to your minnows and fry. So while you can put in like fish kindergartens and stuff like that that are completely walled off, you're relying on the fish to use them. If you create natural shallow skinny water, so if you create ledges where the water is only a couple inches deep or even maybe an inch deep, your minnows can all get up in there. And if there's like different vegetation up in there that's tangled, your minnows can just kind of cruise all through that. Your bluegills and, and your catfish and all, they can't really fit in there. So there's a And the minnows will quickly learn, when I go out over this deep water, I get chomped. I saw Fred get the chomp yesterday. It didn't look fun. 
So I need to stay close, even if I go in open water, I need to stay close to this ledge, and when the chomp's coming, we all run, and whoever's the slowest loses. So create those environments. Then when you go to put your fish in, to me, for food, native fish are best. Whatever lives where you live is designed to survive the climate you're in. And it's easiest to maintain the climate you're in rather than try to create an artificial one, even to some degree. So my favorite fish are sunfish. Brim, bluegill, perch, sunnies. It's a very regional thing, what people call them. Where I grew up in Florida, all sunfish were brim. They're all brim. Bluegill, brim. Pumpkin seed, brim. Brim, 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 brim. You might even know, oh, this is a pumpkin seed, or this is a red ear, or this is a bluegill, but you call them all brim. In Texas, they're all called perch. And people lose their shit. Perch are a different fish. There's yellow perch and white. Yes, I know. And everybody here knows that, too. It's just what they're called. And when I grew up in Pennsylvania, they are called sunnies. Anything that was in that you know sunfish family that wasn't a bass, because all a bass is, all you bass guys, is a big sunfish, uh, all, they're all sunnies. I'll call them whatever you want to. Hybrids, green sun. When I say hybrids, I mean hybrid like green Green, green sunfish cross with bluegills is a type of hybrid sunfish. Um, red ear sunfish, also known as shell crackers, pumpkin seeds, bluegills, copper nose bluegills, all of them are awesome. Generally, you can catch them in like 90% of the country. Generally, there's no bag limits on them. And even in a state where they're like, you're not allowed to take fish from the wild to keep it at home, no one is going to say, Jack diddly crap, if you take a bucket of bluegills home. They just aren't. Um, predators like bass and other predators like, like, uh, pickerel and gar and all they're really cool but they're limiting to your system and they're a pain in the ass they really are a bass if if a bass can swallow it a bass will eat it so if you want to have you know um what a leopard frogs in your pond and you have bass you ain't gonna have many leopard frogs if you want to have bullfrogs you ain't gonna have any bullfrogs they eat them when they're babies if you have pike or pickerel or anything like that they will eat your other fish and so will bass That's not necessarily bad, but it is what it is. Now, if you live close to a park and you live in a state where they don't get mad to use a cast net to catch non-game fish, and they call bluegills a non-game fish, and you can go do a cast net like I can and come home with a hundred little baby bluegills anytime you want to, yeah, throw bass in a pond if you really want to. As long as you're willing to go do the work and bring the bait home for them to eat, great. And when they get you get bigger fish in there with them, they won't eat them. So that's up to you. I personally don't really grow a dedicated predator. I grow, I do have fish that are predator fish, but they're not exclusively predators. And if we take a fish that's not exclusively a predator and we get it eating pellets, it will be less of a predator because it's well-fed. It doesn't want to work hard. So channel catfish and bullhead catfish are both fish like that. I know some of the bullheads. I, I got bullheads in there that I can stick my hand in their mouth now. And bullheads are generally a pretty small catfish. I mean, I've got some big buster bullheads in one of my ponds. And I'm sure the occasional small bluegill or whatever comes by. Oh, sorry about your luck, dude. That's life in the pond. Um, but mostly they eat pellets. And like I said, even the minnows are doing much better a few years into that pond when the fish have been conditioned to eat pellets. So channel cats and blue bullheads will eat pellets. But bullheads all eat their own shit, and they only live on the bottom. Bullshit. Sorry. Bullshit. It's not true. I got video of bullheads eating right off the surface. When food is available, they become conditioned and fish mimic, just like poultry do. So once all the bluegills start eating on the surface, 
and you've put these new bullheads or channel cats or whatever in your pond, and the stomach starts to rumble, and they've eaten the little fish they can catch, and there's all this activity and good-smelling shit up there, they're like, well, what's going on? And once they do it a time or two, they become conditioned and they become uh, pellet-fed. Uh, channel cats are pellet-fed like crazy in farming operations. So channel cats, and you can buy channel cats for stocking. Uh, there's a fish truck that comes around a couple times a year. Usually you can go to like Tractor Supply or Russell Feeds or something around here. You might want to check for that in your area, um, but they can be bought. I'm not going to say no channel cats have ended up in my pond out of lakes, but I'm not going to say they did either. I'm not going to say any of them were too small to officially keep, but I'm not going to say they didn't either. But I don't know. That didn't really happen, but maybe it did. You draw your own conclusions. Goldfish might be the perfect cycling fish. They're cheap, and you don't care if they die. And they're pretty when they live, but here's the thing about them. I've taken goldfish, put them in an aquaponic system, a pond system, whatever. Like, yeah, you know, I probably want like 10 of them in there. So I'll throw two dozen of them in there because I know when I cycle it, they're going to die. A lot of times, none of them die. And all of a sudden, you have a bunch of big carp swimming around in there. It's not a problem. Just, you know, have a plan to get them out if they're in a, a system where you can get them out easily or have a plan to deal with the fact that they might be in there. Um, and be willing to maybe, you know, little piece of bread, number 10 fish hook, club, into the garden as fertilizer, not really a good fish, uh, food, fish for food, so be willing to cull some of them if you need to. Um, koi are beautiful. They are my favorite fish in the world to look at. I love koi. They also produce a significant amount of waste per fish, even per inch of fish compared to goldfish. So they need larger systems to stay healthy. Number two, they get freaking huge. I've seen three and a half foot koi that are as big around as my leg. And this bullshit about they only get as big as their environment is a lie. I don't know where it comes from. I don't care where it comes from. They will keep growing. Now, they will get bigger and reach their maximum potential size in bigger systems. That is true. If they're fed well, they grow faster. And you can feed one totally adequately and slow down its growth rate. But it's not going to get to 18 inches and stop growing, ever. So you're going to end up with a log of a fish. So if you're going to do koi, you need a system big enough for them or a plan for it to go somewhere else if it outgrows your system. Um, same family, goldfish much less waste per fish and a higher tolerance for the waste that they create. So goldfish are great. Koi, you want koi, goldfish are better, what do you do? Shabunk and goldfish. Shabunk and goldfish look like a koi, they are a goldfish. Big long fan tails, lots of different patterns, the same calico look to a koi, um, very, very friendly fish if they're fed well and, and kind of you know, condition to their, their handler, not quite to the level of koi. Like I said, I've seen koi, they're like puppy dogs. But shabunkins are, are close second, and they only get about 10 inches long, maybe 12 on the outside. A koi, if it doesn't hit 12 inches in a year, you've done something wrong. That fish is not healthy. Koi should easily be a foot in a year. And then they slow down from there. But I've got koi in my, my 12-foot pond. They're about 14 inches long. They've been in there right at a year. They're probably four inches when I put them in. That gives you an idea of their growth rate. I have two. I know both of them. I, like, I have the orange cream sickle and platinum. That's their names because I don't have any desire to name them any more intimately than that. But orange cream sickle and platinum, 
they were both came from Petco, dropped them in there. The system had only been up like two weeks. Technically, they should have died. I knew they wouldn't. They're tough fish, and it was a lot of water. And both of them hang out in there, and I see them every day. There's orange creamsicle, there's platinum. I would not put eight koi even in a pond that big. It's a lot of waste, and it. here's the thing. They'll live. They won't die. Don't get me wrong. It's not that I can't do it. If I have a system-level problem, it will seriously reduce the time that I have to fix it. Power goes off, and I'm not home, and it takes me four hours to get home and even know my power's off. That If there's eight or nine or ten or twelve big koi in there, that system's in a far more distressed point than if there's only two. Got me? All right. Cherry shrimp. Not with your fish, because every fish, other than a minnow, which will even eat baby ones, will eat it. But cherry shrimp, also known as neocardanias, the real popular in the aquarium trade. I start. I, I breed them in tanks in my in my office, and I breed red ones and blue ones, and I select the best ones and keep those breeding. And I really don't even do it anymore because now they're just kind of cool. And they said, I don't care what happens to them, let them mutate and morph, whatever. But I did that for a while, and I, and what would happen is. I'd end up with a whole bunch of them that didn't quite make grade. What do I do with them all? I started netting them out and dumping those those three steel top tanks in that system. I talked about mostly minnows live in there, fatheads and uh, mosquito fish. I started just dumping them in there, a couple hundred at a time. One of those tanks right now probably has 10, maybe 20,000 living in it. Lived right through our winter? They're tropical. Well, they lived in freaking water that was 34 degrees, so whatever. And now I've got yellow ones and purple ones and mauve ones and all kinds of crazy colors going on. I'm about to buy some yellows and some oranges and maybe some greens and throw them in there just to see what the F happens. Just mix and mix. And I get a bunch of wild-looking ones, which are the, 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 the dull ones that are like a brownish, grayish color. But I get all kinds of weird colors, too. I'm thinking about actually selling those on eBay, like a hundred, and I don't know what to charge for me. I call them mudbloods, like you don't know what you're going to get, just mudblood shrimp. Um, and they're hardy as hell. And the ones that die, I don't care. So the, the thing about those is they're expensive for like high quality ones. And even like regular plain looking, as long as they're a color of some kind, they're not just gray or brown, they're like a dollar a piece. But when you can breed tens of thousands of them with no work, you don't care that they're expensive. So you want to feed your bluegills? You take a big aquarium net, you know, one that's like a, a six inch net. And you stick it under the water and put something on it so it kind of just sits there and it's like open in the water. Take a algae wafer and drop it in the net. Come back in about 30 minutes. There'll be hundreds of them in there. Lift the net up, throw them in the other thing, put it back, stick the algae wafer back in to catch more if you want to. And once you get a population like I've got going, you'll never run out of them. They just need a place where they're not going to get eaten. And you can then you can select. Oh, this is a, this is purple. We'll put him in this tank with another purple one and see what happens. But you can also just have them for doing this with. And again, I and I love. I go out there and, and I just pull back the surface vegetation. I watch all these colorful little shrimp doing their thing. It's awesome. That's why I built the 50 gallon tank over the habitat pond that I'm building right now because that's going to be full of shrimp as well. And I can be selective with that. I can put like. Oh, yellows and purples and just kind of pick out unique ones to go in there and see what happens. And if they all turn back to a standard color, I don't care. You know, and if nothing else, I got another colony of those things I can use as feeders. Um, crawfish should be do doable. I've never done it, but they should be doable. And I think the best way to do those is get like 
pieces of like one and a half inch pipe and cut them into sections and put that in there so all the little places to hide and be angry at each other. Uh, if you want shellfish, the best fit shellfish you can do in a freshwater system is river prawns, Thai river prawns. These things get massive. When in about a year they grow from a little bitty thing about as big as one of those cherry shrimps to something that the piece of it you eat is about the size of a small lobster tail. The problems. They really need a lot of space to get to their own selves. They'll always be a dominant one. This is the most dominant will kill the other ones if they don't get the hell away from it. And they have these really long claws, like lobster claws. You can't eat them. They're very thin and very long. And they don't look that deadly. They're like razor the claw parts like a razor blade. They will cut if they will just reach up and like in slow motion, and the fish doesn't know it's dangerous because it's so small and moves so slow. They'll just kind of reach up, and a fish swims by, and it looks like somebody took the sharpest scissors you ever saw, and just cuts that fish in half. And they may or may not eat it after that. Sometimes they do it for their own amusement. So they don't really play well with fish. And if you're getting them out, and they get you with that claw, you'll find out it doesn't just look sharp. It will cut your ass open. But you can buy them as feeder prawns at local fish stores. For like a couple cents a piece. So you can buy like 50 of them for a couple dollars. And if you have enough space for them to grow out, at the end of the year, you've got 50 giant shrimps. I don't know anybody really doing it in quantity, though. And they don't survive our winters, from my understanding, even here in Texas. So you'd have to be somewhere warmer, or you have to have a harvest time frame, or you have to be able to heat some of the water. Um, on heating water... Part of the other reason I did the 50 gallon over the 250 gallon for the habitat pond I talked about, I'm going to take a 300 gallon aquarium heater, put it in that 50 gallon pond on my coldest winter days, and I'm not going to have it freeze up. And I'm going to actually raise the temperature of the water because it's only going to be heating that 50 gallons at any one time, which is overflowing back to the main pond. So that'll help raise the temperature of the pond. My metal frame ponds. I have the top three. I put a 250-gallon stock tank, the icer, that kicks on at 35 degrees in each one. I don't do anything with the rest of it. I just let the pumps run and no problems. My Miyagi ponds, I just keep the pumps running. There's enough water volume there. The one year, it got really cold for a week, and I could hear that pump was on the verge of freezing. And I was worried about it, but... It made it through, and it was like five consecutive days where it never came below, above freezing. That's about as bad as we ever get here. If you live in other climates, you got to figure it out what's going to work for you. Um, one of the ideas that Sean Mills gave me, and I think this is a brilliant idea, is you take a pump that's designed to run on a DC direct drive solar panel. That way it only runs when the sun's out. You take that pump, and it can be a very slow pump with just enough head to get the job done. You build a solar hot water heater. And when the sun comes up, enough to run the pump, by then any water that's residual in that hot water heater will have melted. It starts pumping. Water goes up into the hot water heater, goes through the hot water heater as slowly as you can let it go, and comes back out. You could have water going in at like 33 degrees, coming out at 70 degrees. And a big, even 300-gallon thing of water that's 70 degrees, I don't care what the temperature is overnight, it's not going to freeze up. Might, might get some surface ice, but it's not going to freeze up. And that way it'll just kick on when the sun's up and shut off when the sun's down. And if you angle your pipes right, what will happen is as soon as the pump shuts off, it'll drain. So that's, that's one idea. Final thoughts. Number one, please understand something about this. If you can't tell by listening to me today, it's addictive. You build one, you're going to build two. You build two, you're going to build three. I don't know what you're, where you're going to stop, either when you run out of budget, patience from your spouse, or space, 
But you will build multiples, and you will get better every time you do it. So it's addictive. The biodiversity is amazing. I can I know I said it a bunch. I cannot overemphasize what it will do for your property with predator insects, with reptiles, with amphibians, etc. It's amazing. It can be expensive. You're like, oh, I'm going to build this for a couple hundred bucks. $800 later, you're almost done. You know? Um, like I said, a Miyagi Pond, you're going to have two, three thousand dollars I think I about $3,000 into that one Miyagi Pond. That's not the gardens around it and all. That's just the pond itself. The pond, the pump, the liner, the wood. Um, oh, underlayment. So the, what I use for underlayment in those big timber frame ponds is um, foam board insulation. One and a half inch. It's cheap. Four by eight. Buy as many sheets as you need. Cut it with a razor knife. Just set it on the on the ground. And that, that is what keeps your liner safe from the surface of the ground. It also provides another layer of insulation. So, um, But, yeah, it's it, it can be expensive. But to me, when I sit there and look at that pond and I think about what people spend money on, to me it's totally worth it. And you can do it inexpensively. I mean, it, you can do one with landscape timbers and, you know, a, a box store grade liner for... 300 bucks, 400 bucks, throw the pump in, under $500. You can definitely do it for under $500. But it, it's not cheap unless you find ways to use salvage materials. Um, they do need ongoing attention. One thing you're going to have to realize about a pond, build as much automation into it as you can, but if you're going to leave your home and go on vacation for more than you know four or five days, it is inevitable that something is going to need doing during that time. You need kind of a house sitter. We have to have that anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, but like the last time we were on vacation, a storm came through, shut power out for two and a half days. My buddy Michael was house-sitting for me. He's a doer. He got the generators out. He got everything running. We lost nothing. Um, a lesser person here would have probably had a lot of death on his hands. So the more you do, the more you need to think about how you're going to deal with when you're not home. I go weeks where even though I go check on everything, I don't have to do anything. The odds that that will coincide with you not being home are not high enough to expect it. Okay? Um, in cold climates, you've got to go deep or have a heating solution. I am at a climate that it's eight or seven, depending on what map you look at what year. And years where we are a true zone seven, it is... The edge of what I can do to keep everything running through those cold snaps. Now, I only have to worry about it for a week here and a couple days there. But it's a problem. And it, I've gotten, and it, all I can say is you will solve problems when they become evident. So you need to do the best job you can. And as you go into your first winter, pay attention and figure out how to get through it. You know? Um, but the deeper you go, You can end up with you know a foot of ice, and you still have plenty of water, and the fish just sit down there and kind of go to sleep and wait for spring, just like they do in nature. Um, next, start small. Start small. If you decide this isn't for you, you can always sell off a stock tank on Craigslist or something like that and fill a hole in. You know, I mean, you can always turn a box into a garden. So if you build a four by eight, two foot deep pond, and after a year, you're like. Jack really is a jerk, and I don't mean it the nice way. I hate this thing. Okay. Fine. You know what? Put some holes in the liner up high. 
put some rock in the bottom of some pipes, fill it with dirt. You got a great big wicking bed. Now you got a garden. You know, or just take the liner out, fill it with dirt. Cut a hole in the bottom of the liner so it'll drain, fill it with dirt. That way the dirt is not going against the landscape timbers of the last one. I mean, it's not a big deal. Put it somewhere where you'd be okay with it being a flower garden, and if you decide you don't like it as a pond, okay. If you put in something like the 12 by 12 Miyagi pond, and you decide you don't want a pond, you got a major demolition on your hand. That's another reason, by the way, to do the structural wood screws versus the spikes. Just saying. All right? Um, but, yeah, start small. You can always go bigger. Uh, and you're going to learn a lot in your first project. Number uh, Next one, again, keep the critters out of your pond that you don't want in your pond. Just whatever you got to do, fencing, above grade, whatever. Don't, you don't want dogs eating your plants. You don't want dogs swimming in your pond. And you really don't want ducks. I love my ducks but my and I love my ponds, but the two do not go together. I would love to have land where I could put in a half-acre lake and let those ducks swim all they want. I would love that. I don't have that. And a lot of you, the reason you might do a pond like we've talked about today is because you don't either. But you want the pond experience. Great. Ducks have kiddie pools. Ponds have ponds. Uh, next. Think about any and all risks to children. You know, We ended up, because of the ducks and the dogs, fencing those in-ground ponds long before my grandson, who's now I wouldn't even more If he fell in a two-foot pond, he can stand up. I would really worry about a three-year-old falling in a two-foot stock tank, especially in cold weather. Really. So really think about risks to children. But also, let's, again, let's not turn our children into teacups. And let's not be irrational. Here's, a, here's an example of a completely irrational parent. And I pretended to fire somebody to shut her up. She was she was a Karen before they called Karens Karens. Um, back when I worked in underground construction, I had a crew on a job. They were doing directional boring. And that's where you take a machine, you drill a hole in the ground horizontally. You go two foot deep, drill 300 foot out, attach to a cable, pull the cable underground. And that's what we were doing. We were putting cable in for, for the cable television company. And I get a, we call it a heat call. Bad news, unhappy customer. So I get in my truck, and I go out, put my white hard hat on, and hi, I'm, I'm superintendent of the company, what happened? She's flipping out. She wants somebody's ass, her words. Ma'am, I'm here to help you. You have to tell me what happened. For, for all I know, that they damaged you know, a, a $10,000 landscape or something. I don't know what happened yet. Well, they dug a hole. We are an underground company. We do dig holes. Show me the hole. So she shows me the hole. The hole is a foot and a half deep, and it is about a foot in diameter. And at the bottom of it is an electric line, which is no harm to anybody at all. And the reason we dug the hole is because we had to go across that. So the utility company sprayed pink paint or red paint on the ground. That means electric. My guys dug a hole. That way, when the guy drilled, he could either, if it was three foot deep, he could be above it. If it was like it was about a foot deep, it could be underneath it. And no, they're not going to hit it and sh shut down power, possibly get somebody hurt or killed. That's why we dug the hole. Next to the hole was an orange cone. Around the cone was some orange netting, like a construction site, to be like, hey, there's a hole here. Don't step in it and break an ankle. Her assertion was her five-year-old child could fall in the hole and die. 
And if you guys know me <laughs> and my propensity to tell people to go shove their own head up their own ass, and unfortunately I was in a position where I could not do that, but you want to know how close I came to just losing that contract and throwing this woman through a fence. I looked at the hole and I looked up between the hole and her house. Between the hole and her house was an in-ground pool that was not surrounded with a fence. So her five-year-old was not threatened in any way <laughs> by the pool, but the one-foot-deep hole that was maybe 10 inches in diameter, surrounded by a net and a cone, were going to cause her child not to hurt his ankle in it, to fall in it and die. So, I got on my next health, that's how old this is, and had Jesse, who was the foreman for that job, report there, and I dropped a code word into it. And I don't remember what the code word was, but the code word was basically, I'm going to fire you, but you just pretend that you're fired and don't worry about it, you're not actually fired. I brought him there and fired him, fake fired him in front of her. Said, this is unacceptable, this should have been staked out, you should have talked to the homeowner before you left, I'm sorry man, and I, I fake fired him right in front of her. She wasn't happy. And finally, I'm like, okay, maybe I lose a contract. And I said to this woman, ma'am, I just fired him. I just sent him off this job and fired him. He's lost his job. Would you prefer now that I go to his house and punch his child in the face? What do I need to do at this point to make you happy? She said, well, you can start by filling that hole. Ma'am, we're going to fill the hole. We always were going to fill the hole. There was no time in which we weren't going to fill the hole. What I'm going to do is get some people over here right now to stake off the hole and, and, and prop up this barrier here. But this hole has to stay here until we complete our job. And then I gave her a copy of my contract that said I had a right to put a hole in the back of her, her house. She still wasn't happy. I said, ma'am, I don't know what else I can do for you. And she made a phone call, and my boss talked to another boss of the company and uh, blah and back and forth, and basically she was told, this is the way things are going to be. And we even, I even had it covered when she called the office that she asked, she actually asked if this guy was fired. We said, yes, we did fire him. We're sorry. And so <laughs> protect your children, but let's not be stupid. Let's not assume that if a child falls into a one-foot deep, one-foot round hole, they're going to die. Just, ah, oh, boy, I forgot all about that. Anyway, with that, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you that you can help support the show and the work we do, and you can do that by doing your online shopping where at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you'll see all the things that I recommend, and no matter what you buy, if you start your shopping at tspaz.com and you shop online, you will help us out. Today's item of the day, Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone Ointment. You can read the write-up for all of the great things and how it saved me from having to have MCL-LCL surgery. I mean, that's that's pretty major. Uh, recently, I was doing one of these projects I was talking about today, and my hand slipped off, and I busted the crap out of it and really bruised the metatarsal under my index finger and, like, smacked the hell out of the joint of my FU finger. And, uh, man, I used it for a couple days, and it made the pain bearable, and it all went away. And there's just so many things like that. Comfrey is one of the best things in the world for tissue, uh, joint, and abrasions. The one thing you don't want to put comfrey on is a deep wound. It can actually cause it to heal over and, and cause an internal infection from a deep wound. So it's abrasions, sprains, strains. If you, I would, I would not hesitate to use it on a break that had been set, but I can get access to it to speed healing. Uh, the, the, um, the folk name for comfrey is bone set. 
It's awesome. You can find the write-up today. And remember, to get my daily write-ups, my daily recommendations, uh, new episodes, all that stuff, just subscribe to the Daily Mail. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, go to the subscribe page, and fill out the form, and you'll get an email once a day with just the stuff that happened that day and nothing else. That's all that I use it for. And with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. Song of the day today is by Brooks and Dunn, and it is Red Dirt Road. And I love this song. I've always loved this song. And let me tell you the story behind it. Uh, Ronnie Dunn came up with the idea for the song. And a lot of the things in the, the, the song, like wrecking his first car, finding the first girl, um, being saved, uh, you know, all of that came from Ronnie Dunn's life. But this is one of the few songs that Brooks and Dunn actually uh, wrote together. So they were together somewhere, and they had this conversation, and immediately they wrote the chorus between the two of them. Well, they both got on their tour buses to go wherever the hell they were going, and it was like in Kicks' head, kick, Kicks Brooks, and he couldn't get it out of his head. And so he worked on it, and Ronnie Dunn said when they got where they were, he came off, he was like, I got the song, and he played it for him, And it was it was like perfect. It's like, yeah, that's it. That's the song. He actually said, do you want to argue over who gets to sing this one? And Kicks said, no, nah, man, you sing it. Which is the smartest thing Kicks Brooks has ever done in his life. Kicks Brooks is a great musician, shouldn't be a lead singer of any song. Sorry, just sorry, no. Um, Ronnie Dunn has the pipes, man. And so this song got made. So I thought it was cool when I learned that story about it. But the real reason I love this song is everybody that grew up in the country anyway has their own red dirt road. Now, maybe it's not really a red dirt road, but they have a red dirt road symbolically. They have some place or some collection of places that things in this story happened for them. We all have a place, if, you're, if you were a teenager in the 80s or the 70s, you have a place, or 60s, you have a place you raced cars. And you probably wrecked one. And that place probably is in close proximity to the place you got your first kiss. And it's probably a place that you hung out with your buddies. And it's probably a place that even if it doesn't exist anymore because progress took it away, it will always exist in your heart and in your mind. And there will be some time, even when you're an old man, Somebody will say something, somebody will think of something, somebody will mention something, something will happen, you'll smell something. One way or another, you'll go to that place. you go to your red dirt road. And I'll tell you why that is the case with this song. It wasn't made up. It wasn't made up like so much modern country. It wasn't just put together because the words rhymed and it sounded like something that would fit in a country song. It was a real story from some one individual's past. And the thing is, we are all so much the same. Whether you grew up in rural Pennsylvania like I did, or Arkansas, which is where Ronnie Dunn grew up and where the Red Dirt Road is, or the hills of Montana, or the farms of Nebraska, or ranches of Colorado, the hill country, or the mountains of California. If you grew up anywhere like that, see the shining sea. You have your own Red Dirt Road. And with that... It's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Out past where the black top ends. We'd walk to church on Sunday morning, race barefoot back to Johnson's Fence. That's where I first saw Mary on that roadside picking blackberries. That summer I turned a corner in my soul down that red dirt. It's where I drank my first beer It's where I found Jesus Where I wrecked my 
heaven is full of sinners and believers. Learn that happiness on earth ain't just for high achievers. I've heard, I've come to know there's life at both ends. That red dirt Like I found a long 